Welcome to the Histrionics Podcast, where I review pieces of history that aren't very well known or deserve a little more attention. Today I'm going to discuss another escape attempt from Alcatraz, a strange mystery in West Virginia, and a UFO sighting in the forests of England. December 16, 1937. Theodore Cole and Ralph Rowe escape from Alcatraz Island. Neither is ever seen again. Theodore, Ted Cole, and Ralph Rowe took part in a second documented escape attempt from Alcatraz. Although officials were quick to conclude they died in the attempt, their remains were never found and their fate remains unknown, making the incident the first to challenge Alcatraz's reputation as an escape-proof prison. Cole and Rowe, both convicted bank robbers in Oklahoma, had been caught during earlier independent escape attempts from the state's McAllister prison. As escape risks, they were both incarcerated in high-security Leavenworth prison, then transferred to higher-security Alcatraz in 1936. They were given jobs working in the prison's mat shop, a facility at the northernmost point of the island, where discarded automobile tires were cut up and converted into rubber mats for the U.S. Navy. Rowe was originally captured after a shootout with local police and FBI agents in Shawnee on December 30, 1933, which claimed the life of Rowe's partner, Wilbur Underhill Jr., and Cole had been given a death sentence for his role in the robbery of a bottling plant in Tulsa. On December 16, 1937, a dense fog swept through the San Francisco Bay, impeding marine traffic and reducing visibility to near zero on Alcatraz Island. Cole and Rowe were working in the mat shop. A routine headcount at 1 p.m. showed all prisoners accounted for. At the next count, at 1.30 p.m., the two men were gone. Two iron bars and three heavy glass panes of a window in the shop had a hole 9 inches high and 18 inches long. Once through the window, they slipped down to the gate of a high-wire fence, concealed by the fog. With the wrench taken from the tire shop, they forced open the gate lock and dropped 20 feet to a beach. Their trail vanished at that point. An exhaustive search of the island revealed nothing. Guards found only the abandoned wrench. An extensive multi-day search ensued. Portions of the island were flooded with tear gas in an attempt to flush out the escapees with no result. Subsequent investigation revealed that Cole and Rowe had prepared for the escape well in advance, using a hacksaw blade to weaken the window bars and disguising the damage with a mixture of grease and shoe polish. At the beach, the men presumably entered the water relying on floats improvised from tires or fuel canisters. There was no evidence to suggest they had constructed or launched a raft. Prison officials concluded that Cole and Rowe drowned shortly after their escape. The swift ebb tides at the time, estimated at seven to nine knots, would have swept even an expert swimmer out of the bay and into the Pacific Ocean. The fog was so thick, it would have been almost impossible for other boats to see them in the water. The prisoners would not know if they were even swimming towards shore and they were likely swept out to sea. 
As it was late December, the water would have been very cold, ranging from 45 to 60 degrees Fahrenheit. Warden Johnston said, The water is too cold, the tide is running too high, and the land is too far. Despite their likely fate, police departments in the surrounding counties and the FBI followed up every tip and rumor. In the following days, months, and years, there were various reports of sightings, but their authenticity is unknown. Two hitchhikers claimed to have seen Roe and Cole and identified them to police by their photos. A 1941 San Francisco Chronicle report declared that the pair were living in South America, and a cab driver in Cole's hometown of Seminole, Oklahoma, told police he had been shot by men he recognized as the two escapees. The Seminole producer reported on June 7, 1939, Ted Cole, who escaped from Alcatraz prison with Ralph Rowe in 1937, was sought here today by federal agents, more than 18 months after prison officials said they believed he had drowned in San Francisco Bay. The G-men here maintained their customary silence, but one Seminole man, who had known both Cole and Rowe at Leavenworth Penitentiary, said that he and other local residents had been questioned about the fugitives. Sandy Hood, in charge of FBI operations in the sector, and Officer Smith of the G-Men, were in this area presumably working on the case with local officers. Oklahoma officers seemed to intentionally try to not identify the escapees as they continued their hijacking spree in the Oklahoma area. The Seminole producer reported again on June 24, 1939, Seminole Police Chief Jake Sims and the Highway Patrol have linked Ralph Rowe, Alcatraz fugitive, to a hijacking. In Oklahoma City, Miss Lois Daniels reported that neither she nor her daughter had been asked to identify photographs of Roe. Mrs. Daniels saved over $1,000 worth of jewelry by tossing it into the weeds while the hijacker took a $1,000 ring from her daughter. Hijacking victim Ed Talley of Oklahoma City also said he had not been asked to identify the pictures of Roe. Here's my take on Ted Cole and Ralph Rowe. I hope they survived the escape and got away. I think with your adrenaline really jacked up, as it would be during a prison escape, it's possible to do things beyond your normal capabilities. Police and the FBI lie just as much as criminals, so it's possible they were hunting for Cole and Roe long after the escape. December 24, 1945. Five children are missing after their home in Fayetteville, West Virginia, is burned down. On Christmas Eve, a fire destroyed the Sauter residence. At the time, it was occupied by George Sauter, his wife Jenny, and nine of their ten children. During the fire, George, Jenny, and four of the nine children escaped. The bodies of the other five children have never been found. The surviving Sauter family believed for the rest of their lives that the five missing children survived. George Sauter was born in Italy in 1895. He immigrated to the United States at the age of 13 with his older brother. His brother went back home as soon as they cleared customs at Ellis Island. 
George did not talk much about why he left his homeland. Sauter eventually found work on the railroads in Pennsylvania, carrying water and other supplies to workers. After a few years, he took more permanent work as a driver in Smithers, West Virginia. He then started his own trucking company, initially hauling dirt to construction sites and later hauling coal from the mines. Jenny, a storekeeper's daughter in Smithers, who also emigrated from Italy in her childhood, became George's wife. The Sauters settled down in nearby Fayetteville, which had a large population of Italian immigrants, in a two-story timber frame house a couple miles from town. In 1923, they had the first of their ten children. George's business prospered, and they became one of the most respected middle-class families around. George had many strong opinions about many subjects and was not shy about expressing them. His staunch opposition to Italian dictator Benito Mussolini had led to some strong arguments with other members of the immigrant community. The last of the Sauter children, Sylvia, was born in 1942. By then, their second oldest son, Joe, had left home to serve in the military during World War II. The following year, Mussolini was deposed and executed. However, George's criticism of the late dictator had left some hard feelings. In October of 1945, a visiting life insurance salesman, after being rebuffed, warned George that his house would go up in smoke and his children would be destroyed, attributing this all to the remarks George was making about Mussolini. Another visitor to the house, likely seeking work, warned George that a pair of fuse boxes would cause a fire someday. George was confused by this observation since he just had the house rewired when an electric stove was installed and the local electric company said it was safe after the installation. In the weeks before Christmas, George's older sons also noticed a strange car parked along the main highway through town, with its occupants watching the young solder children as they returned home from school. On Christmas Eve in 1945, the family was celebrating together. Marion, the oldest daughter at age 19, had been working at a dime store in downtown Fayetteville, and she surprised three of her younger sisters, Martha, age 12, Jenny, age 8, and Betty, age 5, with new toys she had bought for them as gifts. The younger children were so excited that they asked their mother if they could stay up past what would have been their normal bedtime. At 10 p.m., Mrs. Sauter told them they could stay up a little later as long as the two oldest boys were still awake. 14-year-old Maurice and his 9-year-old brother Louis rounded up the cows and fed the chickens before getting ready for bed. Mr. Sauter and the two oldest boys, John, age 22, and George Jr., age 16, who had spent the day working with their father, were already asleep. After reminding the children of the remaining chores, Mrs. Sauter took Sylvia, age two, upstairs with her and they went to bed together. The telephone rang a half hour after midnight. Jenny woke up and went downstairs to answer. The caller was a woman whose voice she did not recognize, asking for a name she was not familiar with, with the sound of laughter and clinking glasses in the background. Jenny told the caller she had reached the wrong number, later recalling the woman's weird laugh. Jenny hung up and returned to bed. As she did, she noticed the lights were still on and the curtains were not drawn, 
two things the children normally attended to when they stayed up later than their parents. Marion fell asleep on the living room couch, so Jenny assumed the other children who stayed up late went to the attic where they slept. She closed the curtains, turned out the lights, and returned to bed. At 1 a.m., Jenny woke up again to the sound of an object hitting the house's roof with a loud bang and then a rolling noise. After hearing nothing further, she went back to sleep. Another 30 minutes went by and she woke up a third time to the smell of smoke. When she got up, she found that the room George used for his office was on fire, around the telephone line and fuse box. Jenny woke him up and he ran to wake his older sons. Both parents and four of their children, Marion, Sylvia, John, and George Jr., escaped the house. They frantically yelled to the children upstairs but heard no response. They could not get into the attic as the stairway was already engulfed with flames. Efforts to find aid and rescue the children were unexpectedly complicated. The phone did not work, so Marion ran to a neighbor's house to call the Fayetteville Fire Department. A driver on the nearby road also saw the flames and called from a nearby tavern. George, who was barefoot, climbed the house's outside wall and broke open an attic window, cutting his arm in the process. He and his sons intended to use a ladder to rescue the other children, but it was not in its usual spot against the house and could not be found anywhere nearby. George then tried to pull both of his trucks up to the house and use them to climb into the attic window, but neither of them would start despite working the previous day. The six Sauters who escaped had no choice but to watch the house burn down and collapse over the next 45 minutes. They assumed the other five children perished in the blaze. The fire department, low on manpower due to the war and relying on individual firefighters to call each other, did not respond until later that morning. The following day, Chief F.J. Morris said the already slow response was further hampered by his inability to drive the fire truck, requiring that he wait until someone who could drive was available. The firefighters, that included Jenny's brother, couldn't do much aside from look through the ashes that were left in the Sauter's basement. By 10 a.m., Chief Morris told the Sauters they couldn't find anything, not even bones. According to another account, they did find a few bone fragments and internal organs, but chose not to tell the family. It has also been noted by modern fire professionals that their search was probably minimal at best. Nevertheless, Morris believed that the five children unaccounted for had died in the fire, suggesting it had been hot enough to burn their bodies to ash. Morris told George to leave the site undisturbed so that the state fire marshal's office could conduct a more thorough investigation. However, after four days, George and his wife could not bear the site anymore so he bulldozed five feet of dirt over the site with the intention of converting it into a memorial garden for the lost children. The local coroner convened an inquest the next day, which held that the fire was an accident caused by faulty wiring. Among the jurors was the man who threatened George that his house would be burned down and his children destroyed for his anti-Mussolini remarks. Not long afterward, the Sauter family started to question the official findings about the fire. They wondered why, if it had been caused by an electrical problem, the family's Christmas lights remained on throughout the fire's early stages when the power should have gone out. 
They also found the ladder that was missing from the side of the house at the bottom of an embankment 75 feet away. A telephone repairman told the Sauters that the house's phone line had not been burned through in the fire, as they initially thought, but cut by someone who was willing and able to climb 15 feet up the pole. A man neighbors had seen stealing a rope and pulley from the property around the time of the fire was identified and arrested. He admitted to the theft and claimed he had been the one who cut the phone line, thinking it was a power line, but denied having anything to do with the fire. However, no record identifying the suspect exists, and why he would have cut any utility lines to the solder house has never been explained. Jenny also had trouble accepting Morris's belief that all traces of the children's bodies had been burned completely in the fire. Many of the household appliances had been found in the ash, along with fragments of the tin roof. She compared the results of the fire with the newspaper account of a similar house fire that killed a family of seven. Skeletal remains of all the victims were found in that case. Jenny burned small piles of animal bones to see if they would be completely consumed by fire, and none of them ever were. An employee of a local crematorium told her that human bones remain even after bodies are burned at 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit for two hours, far longer and hotter than the house fire could have been. The solder's truck's failure to start was also considered. George believed they had been tampered with, perhaps by the same man who stole the rope and pulley and cut the phone line. However, it has been suggested that in their haste to start the trucks, the solders may have flooded the engines. Some accounts have suggested that the strange phone call to the solder house might have been also connected to the fire. However, investigators later located the woman who made that call. She confirmed it had been the wrong number on her part. As spring approached, the Sauters planted flowers in the soil on top of the house. However, developments in 1946 reinforced the family's belief that the children might actually be alive somewhere. Evidence came out indicating that the fire was started deliberately. The driver of a bus that passed through Fayetteville late on Christmas Eve said he saw people throwing, quote, balls of fire at the house. A few months later, when the snow had melted, young Sylvia found a small, hard, ball-shaped object in the brush nearby. George, recalling his wife's account of a loud thump on the roof before the fire, said it looked like a pineapple bomb hand grenade or some other incendiary device used in combat. The family later claimed, contrary to the fire marshal's conclusion, that the fire started on the roof. Other witnesses claimed to have seen the missing solder children themselves. One woman who was watching the fire from the road said she saw the kids peering out of a passing car while the house was burning. Another woman at a rest stop between Fayetteville and Charleston said she served them breakfast the next morning and noted the presence of a car with Florida license plates in the rest stop's parking lot. The Sauters hired a private investigator named C.C. Tinsley to look into the case. Tinsley informed the family that the insurance salesman who threatened George over his anti-Mussolini sentiments had been on the coroner's jury that ruled the fire an accident. He also learned of rumors around Fayetteville that despite his report to the Sauters that no remains had been found in the ashes, Chief Morris found a heart which he later packed into a metal box and secretly buried. 
Morris had apparently confessed this to a local minister, who in turn confirmed it to George. George and the private investigator went to Chief Morris and confronted him with this news. Morris agreed to show the two where he had buried the metal box, and they dug it up. They took what they found inside the box to a local funeral director, who after examining it, told them it was actually a fresh beef liver that had never been exposed to any fire. In 1949, George saw a magazine photo of a group of young ballet dancers in New York City, one looking very much like his missing daughter, Betty. He drove all the way to the girls' school, where he repeatedly demanded to see her, but was refused. George also contacted the FBI to investigate what he considered to be a kidnapping. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover personally responded to his letter, stating, quote, Although I would like to be of service, the matter related appears to be of local character and does not come within the jurisdiction of this bureau. He also said that if the local authorities requested the bureau's assistance, he would direct agents to assist, but the Fayetteville police and fire departments declined to do so. In August of 1949, George was able to persuade Oscar Hunter, a Washington, D.C. pathologist, to supervise a new search through the dirt at his house. After a very thorough search, a dictionary that belonged to the children and some coins were found. Several small bone fragments were unearthed as well and determined to be human vertebrae. The bone fragments were sent to Marshall Newman, a specialist at the Smithsonian. They were confirmed to be all from the same person, likely 16 or 17 years old, according to the report. Given this age range, it was not very likely that the bones were from any of the five missing children, since the oldest, Maurice, was 14 at the time. Newman added that the bones showed no sign of exposure to flame. He agreed that it was very strange that those bones were the only ones found, since a wood fire of such short duration should have left full skeletons of all the children behind. The report concluded that the vertebrae had instead, most likely, come from the dirt that George had used to bulldoze the site. It was supposedly confirmed that the bone fragments came from a nearby cemetery in Mount Hope, but it could not be explained how they came to be at the fire site. The investigation and its findings attracted national attention, and the West Virginia legislature held two hearings on the case in 1950. Afterwards, however, the Sauter's case was deemed hopeless and closed at the state level. The FBI decided it had jurisdiction as a possible interstate kidnapping, but dropped the case after two years of following fruitless leads. The Sauter family did not give up hope. They had flyers printed up with pictures of the children, offering a $5,000 reward, which doubled to $10,000, for information that would have settled the case for even one of them. In 1952, they put up a billboard at the site of the house and another along U.S. Route 60 with the same information. The billboard became a landmark for traffic going through Fayetteville. The family's efforts soon brought another reported sighting of the children after the fire. Ida Crutchfield, a woman who ran a Charleston hotel, claimed to have seen the children approximately a week afterwards. The children had come in around midnight with two men and two women, all of whom appeared to be of Italian extraction. When she attempted to speak with the children, one of the men looked at her in a hostile manner, then turned around and began talking rapidly in Italian. 
She recalled that they left the hotel early the next morning. Investigators do not consider her story credible as she saw photos of the children two years after the fire and five years before she came forward. George followed up leads in person, traveling to areas where tips had come from. When George heard that a relative of Jenny's, living in Florida, had children that looked similar to his, the relative had to prove the children were his own before George was satisfied. In 1967, George went to Houston to investigate another tip. A woman there wrote to the family, saying that Lewis had revealed his true identity to her one night after having too much to drink. She believed that he and Maurice were both living in Texas somewhere. However, George and his son-in-law were unable to speak with her. Police helped them find the two men she indicated, but they both denied being the missing sons. Another letter they received that year brought the Sauters hope that at least Lewis was still alive. The letter was postmarked in Central City, Kentucky, and addressed to Jenny, with no return address. Inside was a picture of a young man, about 30 years old, with features strongly resembling Lewis, who would have been in his 30s if he survived. On the back was written, Lewis Sauter, I love brother Frankie, Lil Boys, A90132, or 35. They added the picture to the billboard and put an enlarged print over their fireplace. They also hired another investigator to go to Central City, but he never reported anything back to the Sauters. George Sauter died in 1969. Jenny and her surviving children, except John, who never talked about the night of the fire, except to say that the family should accept what happened and move on with their lives, continued to seek answers to their questions about the missing children's fate. After George's death, Jenny stayed in the family home. For the rest of her life, she tended the garden at the site of the former house. After her death in 1989, the family finally took down the weathered, worn-out billboard. The surviving Sauter children continued to publicize the case and investigate leads. They, along with older Fayetteville residents, have theorized that the Sicilian Mafia was trying to extort money from George. The children may have been taken by someone who knew about the planned arson and said they would be safe if they left the house, and possibly taken back to Italy. If the children had survived all those years and were aware that their parents and siblings had survived too, the family believes they may have avoided contact in order to protect them and keep them from harm. The modern consensus is that the children most likely died in the fire. The house was smoldering all night, despite the substantial flames burning out after two hours. Although many questions remain, and the case is still widely discussed. Here's my take on the Sauter children. I think they died in the fire. I love a good mystery, and the idea of them living a somewhat normal life in Italy would be nice but it just doesn't seem very likely. And if they were kidnapped, that doesn't typically end well regardless of the reason why. December 26, 1980. 
Witnesses report sightings of unexplained lights in Rendlesham Forest in Suffolk, England. The events occurred just outside RAF Woodbridge, which was used by the United States Air Force at the time. Air Force personnel, including Deputy Base Commander Lieutenant Colonel Charles Holt, described what they saw as a UFO sighting, which became linked with claims of UFO landings. The main events of the incident, including the supposed landings, took place in the forest, which starts at the east end of the base runway, where security guards first noticed mysterious lights appearing to descend into the forest. The forest extends about one mile east, where additional events allegedly took place. The occurrence is one of the most famous UFO events to happen in the United Kingdom, and is among the best-known UFO events worldwide. It has been compared to the Roswell UFO incident in the United States, and is sometimes referred to as Britain's Roswell. The UK Ministry of Defense stated that the event posed no threat to national security, and therefore was never investigated as a security matter. Skeptics have explained the sightings as a series of meteors, a lighthouse, and bright stars. Around 3 a.m. on December 26, 1980, a security patrol near the east gate of RAF Woodbridge saw lights descending into nearby Rendlesham Forest. Servicemen initially thought it was a downed aircraft, but after entering the forest to investigate, they saw a glowing object, metallic in appearance, with colored lights. As they attempted to approach the object, it appeared to move through the trees, and the animals on a nearby farm went into a frenzy. One of the servicemen, Sergeant Jim Peniston, later claimed to have encountered, quote, a craft of unknown origin while in the forest, although there was no publicized mention of this at the time, and there is no corroboration from other witnesses. Shortly after 4 a.m., local police were called to the scene, but reported that the only lights they could see were from the Orford Ness Lighthouse, miles away on the coast. After daybreak on the morning of December 26th, the servicemen returned to a small clearing near the eastern edge of the forest and found three small impressions on the ground, in a triangular pattern, as well as burn marks and broken branches on nearby trees. At 10.30 a.m., the local police were called out again, this time to see the impressions which they thought could have been made by an animal. Georgina Bruni, in her book called You Can't Tell the People, published a photograph of the supposed landing site taken on the morning after the first sighting. The deputy base commander, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Holt, visited the site with several servicemen in the early morning hours of December 28, 1980. The deputy base commander, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Holt, visited the site with several servicemen in the early hours of December 28, 1980, to take radiation readings in the Triangle of Depressions and in the surrounding area. It was during this investigation that a flashing light was seen across the field to the east, almost in line with the farmhouse, as the witnesses had seen on the first night, and also in line with the lighthouse. Later, according to a memo written by Lieutenant Holt, three star-like lights were seen in the sky, two to the north and one to the south, about 10 degrees above the horizon. 
Holt said the brightest of these hovered for two to three hours and seemed to beam down a stream of light from time to time. Astronomers have explained these as simply bright stars, but Holt has gone on record as saying he believes that he witnessed an extraterrestrial event that was covered up. The Holt memo was the first piece of evidence made available to the public under the U.S. Freedom of Information Act in 1983. It was dated January 13, 1981, under the title, Unexplained Lights. The two-week delay between the incident and the report might account for errors in the dates and the times given. The memo was not classified in any way. David Clark, a consultant to the National Archives, has investigated the background of this memo and the reaction to it by the Ministry of Defense. His interviews with the personnel involved confirmed the cursory nature of the investigation made by the Ministry of Defense and failed to find any evidence for any other reports on the incident made by the United States Air Force or the United Kingdom. A 1983 Omni article says, quote, Colonel Ted Conrad, the base commander, recalls five Air Force policemen spotted lights from what they thought was a small plane descending into the forest. Two of the men tracked the object on foot and came upon a large, tripod-mounted craft. It had no windows but was studded with brilliant red and blue lights. Each time the men came within 50 yards of the ship, it levitated six feet in the air and backed away. They followed it for almost an hour through the woods and across a field until it took off at a phenomenal speed. Acting on the reports made by his men, Colonel Conrad began a brief investigation of the incident in the morning. He went into the forest and located a triangular pattern ostensibly made by the tripod legs. He interviewed two of the witnesses and concluded, Those lads saw something, but I don't know what it was. In 1984, a copy of what became known as the Holt Tape was released to UFO researchers by Colonel Sam Morgan, Holt's superior at the time. This tape chronicles Holt's investigation in the forest in real time, including taking radiation readings, the sighting of the flashing lights between the trees, and the star-like objects that hovered and twinkled. In June of 2010, Holt signed a notarized affidavit in which he again summarized what happened believing an extraterrestrial event was covered up by both the UK and the US. Contradictions between this affidavit and the facts as recorded at the time in Holt's memo and Holt's tape recording have been pointed out. Also in 2010, Base Commander Colonel Ted Conrad provided a statement about the incident to David Clark. Conrad stated that, quote, we saw nothing that resembled Lieutenant Colonel Holt's descriptions either in the sky or on the ground. We had people in position to validate Holt's narrative, but none of them could. In an interview, Conrad criticized Holt for the claims in his affidavit, saying he should be ashamed and embarrassed by his allegation that his country and Britain both conspired to deceive their citizens over this issue. Conrad also disputed the testimony of Sergeant Jim Penniston, who claimed to have touched an alien spacecraft. He said that he interviewed Penniston at the time, and he had not mentioned any such occurrence. Conrad also suggested that the entire incident might have been a hoax. 
Suffolk police were also called to the scene on the night of the initial sighting and again the following morning, but found nothing unusual. On the night of the initial incident, they reported that the only lights visible were from the lighthouse. They attributed the indentations in the ground to animals. The Suffolk file on the case was released in 2005 under the UK's Freedom of Information Act. It includes a letter dated July 28, 1999, written by Inspector Mike Topless, who notes that one of the police constables who attended the scene on the first night returned to the site in daylight just in case he missed something. Topless wrote, There was nothing to be seen, and he remains unconvinced that the occurrence was genuine. The immediate area was swept by powerful light beams from a landing beacon at RAF and the Orford Ness Lighthouse. I know from personal experience that at night, in certain weather and cloud conditions, these beams were very pronounced and certainly caused strange visual effects. Other theories have been proposed, from police lights to a Russian spy plane, but without any evidence whatsoever. Most people have concluded it was a combination of things that led Holt to believe he saw an extraterrestrial spacecraft that night. Here's my take on the Rendlesham Forest incident. I agree with the consensus on this one. It was probably a combination of aircraft, bright stars, the lighthouse, the weather, or whatever else that got Holt's mind going in one direction. I'm not doubting he believes he saw a UFO, but I don't think he saw a UFO. But I'm not talking shit either. I still can't explain the ghost I saw as a teenager. I was with three other people, and none of us can explain what we saw that night. But it probably wasn't a ghost. And I'm sorry, but there's gotta be a better UFO sighting to compare to Roswell. This is pretty weak to call it Britain's Roswell. But whatever. Well, that's gonna do it. I appreciate everyone tuning in, and we will see you next time.